A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a special edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, Glenn Moore of World Soccer, and Ali Oladipo, the journalist and broadcaster. We all have our favourite memories of Diego Maradona. If you forgive the indulgence, I'll start with mine. I'm often asked what it was like to be in the Azteca Stadium on June the 22nd, 1986, when the extremes of Maradona's life was symbolised by two goals in less than four minutes. Unforgettable, in a word. The kick-off time of England's World Cup quarter-final against Argentina, high noon, felt appropriate. The heat was oppressive. The smog, which scoured the throat and occasionally stung the eyes, didn't clear until late morning. We suffered from what we called the Mexico cough. I was high up in the main stand, parallel to the right-hand penalty area in which Gary Lineker was to poach a quickly forgotten consolation goal. For some weird reason, I couldn't take my eyes off the coiled shadows cast by the stadium's public address system across the centre of the pitch. There were nearly 115,000 people there that day. They saw the hand of God. Maradona, cutting in from the left, beat Glenn Hoddle, Peter Reid and the hapless Terry Fennick before drawing covering defenders towards him. Steve Hodge was panicked into slicing an attempted clearance towards his own goal. Time slowed down. Confusion reigned. Something was obviously not right, since Maradona had evidently grown six inches or learned to levitate above Peter Shilton. But if I were to tell you I knew immediately he'd punched the ball into the net, I'd be lying. It took a couple of minutes, several TV replays, and the sight of colleagues on the right-hand end of the press box who were closer to the action, punching their palms before we sensed the magnitude of the story. As the day's colour writer, it was my job to amplify the mood of the England camp. Bobby Robson was incandescent. His players raged in the dressing room, demanding the FA seek a replay. Terry Butcher was tempted to punch Maradona when they met in the drug testing area. He's a lovely guy, but more than 30 years later, it still rankled. He described Maradona in two words. I'm not allowed to use the first one in polite company. The second one is cheat. 
Looking back, Maradona was finally untethered from the conventions of morality. This was an early manifestation of the bug-eyed cheat thrown out of the 1994 World Cup for failing a drugs test. Yet I forgave him everything for that wondrous second goal. I don't have to describe it. Close your eyes and you'll see it. We knew we were in the presence of greatness that day. I fell in love with a deeply flawed human being who happened to be a fabulous footballer. He unlocked the child in me because buried beneath the layers of celebrity and notoriety, he remained a child himself. There's so much more I can say, but I better let others have a go. How will you remember him, Miguel? Uh, I suppose the easy line, uh, a question like that is, is the greatest player of all time. And, well, that's obviously got to come into a lot of debate now. I think what's more accurate with Maradona, I suppose, is the way he made you feel when he watched him. And, and more than anything, I think, like, I mean, I was a child of the late 80s, early 90s. And I just remember growing up, Maradona seemed like the most impossibly exotic and fantastical sporting figure possible. And I think uh, whatever about the wider discussions of his, of his quality and all, I, I think that's what really lasts about him. It's that it's that emotional impact. And as we're going to see over the next few days, and you can already see in Naples and Argentina, as well pretty much all over the world, given some of the reactions, given some of the front pages that we're going to talk about, the emotional impact as well. I genuinely think and there's no other sporting figure to compare other than maybe Muhammad Ali, partly because you're supposed to just, just reach your football. And I, I think that's what he did. I, and what you mo- what I most remember about Maradona, I suppose, for, I mean, he had, I wrote this yesterday in my independent piece, but for all the different incarnations he had, and there were really a lot, what will always stick is that image of a, of him striding forward, the ball just seeming impossibly connected to his foot and just in total control. And, and, it, and in a wondrous way. Yeah, you mentioned front pages there, Migs. There's a brilliant front page on L'Equipe this morning. The headline, Dieu est mort, God is dead. Now, it's not often I quote Nietzsche, Glenn, but the full quote is, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. Do you think the subs on L'Equipe were trying to make a point? Because Maradona lived his life almost for other people and amidst other people. Possibly, though, I'm not quite sure how many of their readers would know it like you do, Michael. Um, <laughs> I, w- I would say, yes, I guess he lived such a public, open life. And there's an interesting piece, I mean, you know, the film, obviously, that we're, we're talking about, Asif Kapadia's film, and indeed Matt Dickerson's piece in The Times this morning about looking at where he came from and how he was catapulted through his ability into, into a world where he, he didn't really have the tools to survive it. And he ended up surrounded by... The wrong people, especially in Naples. I mean, all successful people, especially sports people, are uh, often surrounded by hangers-on who are only in it for what they can get out of it. And a huge amount of people live live off them. And Maradona, you know, being the, the biggest figure of his age, had that in spades. And he was surrounded by lots of people who were more interested in what they could do for themselves from him than the other way around. And he's a very, you know, quite a generous guy, like a lot of the um, successful sportsmen are. And lots of people benefit from being around him and didn't really help him. So he was sort of... I mean, it'd be wrong to call him an innocent out in the jungle because obviously he wasn't an innocent, but 
he wasn't equipped to deal with the life. I mean, let's be honest, who, who of us would be to live that kind of life in whatever background you come from? That incredible adulation. I mean, the, the Church of Maradona, there's a mention of the fact that his daughter goes to one of the meetings and you know, they regard him as a saint and they start treating her like a, like a saint. And how weird that is. And can you imagine being the object of that veneration and, and sort of uh, love? It'd be very... Very, very difficult to keep your head on the ground, keep level-headed, you know, whatever your background was, even if you've been, you know, I, I guess like more family, being brought up to live like that. It'd be very, very difficult. I did see a, a glimpse of it. I mean, towards the end of his career, I was in Australia in 93, mainly covering cricket, but freelancing out there. And Argentina had a, had a terrible qualification for the 94 World Cup. It's the one where they famously lost 5-0 to Colombia. And Maradona hadn't played a competitive game for about three years, but he was persuaded to come back and play for the team. Uh, he lost a lot of weight and he came out and he came and played in... Argentina had to play one of those um, playoff qualifiers against Australia. Now, at the time, Australia soccer, well, football soccer, wasn't very big in Australia at the time. This is 93. And, but Maradona transcended that. And suddenly, the Zocaroos... I mean, Graham Arnold was talking about this recently, the current manager who played in that game. Suddenly, the Zocaroos were front page. You know, all the TV channels. They went to the old Sydney football stadium. Capacity, 41,000. 43,000 <laughs> got in there. So, And I was at that game, and I covered that game. And it was Maradona was man-marked throughout the game, showed little flashes of his ability, and then got away and created the goal for Abel uh, Balboa. And they drew 1-1, and they went through 2-1 in aggregate. So the crucial goal. And afterwards, it was absolute bedlam. And yeah, everyone there just wanted a, a piece of him. Imagine living your life like that all the time. Yeah. Yeah, some would say getting to 60 was an achievement. If you look at it, you know, the, I've been struck by two things. One, the intensity of the morning and also sort of perversely, the beauty of some of the tributes have been fantastic. Addy, you know, when we talk about the greatest, it's usually a generational choice, isn't it? You know, mm. go go back in history, why not the Stefano being the greatest or Pushgas? Pelé, your generation, if I offered you the choice between Messi or Maradona, where would you go? It's difficult, it really is. And I guess it's difficult because I feel like football now is so stat-driven. Uh, we, we seem obsessed with, with goals and assists and how many kilometres did they run in a game rather than just watching the game for its beauty. And if you watch the game for its beauty, I think they're both just on par with each other. Although Messi has given us some unbelievably beautiful moments uh, throughout his career. But I think it's difficult to get past the moment of what Maradona did in that 86 World Cup quarterfinal. You, you just can't, you just can't beat that. And although Messi has given us some absolute moments, football at its highest, at its best, it is the World Cup. You said you were there, 115,000 people and he does that at the World Cup. Let's, let's park the hand of God for a second. That run to score that goal was just was just a thing of beauty. And I'm more attracted to those moments rather than massive stats and figures. And so I would always lean to Maradona. Again, look, it's, I mean, it's pick'em, isn't it? Because Messi's just been an unbelievable genius. So has Ronaldo, both Ronaldos, really, R9 Ronaldo and Portuguese Ronaldo. But I think Maradona, just the smile he put on faces wherever he went, it's more than just football. It's about him turning up to venues as a rock star. This guy met presidents and he met singers and actresses. He was more than just football. And I think that's what makes him so special. And I think that's why the morning and and, and 
the, the amount of people that are writing fantastic pieces about him just sum his life up. I mean, this guy was a flawed genius. And I've always been attracted to flawed geniuses for some reason. I mean, I like the, the you know, the Ronnie O'Sullivan's of the world, the Mike Tyson's of the world, even to athletics, Marion Jones's people that were so brilliant, but have and were flawed off, off their certain sporting criteria. And, and Maradona was that. So I would always edge towards Maradona. He was a showman. I mean, remember those images of him when everyone's doing their, their sort of setups for a game, he's in the centre circle doing kickups and just showing off to the world. And that's what sport is about for me. I think sport right now has just gone so about stats and goals and assists. I, I prefer the moments. And I think Maradona's given me moments in real special occasions. And I don't think it gets any higher than, than a World Cup. And he's done that. And let's not forget as well, the assist in the World Cup final as well. He's given us those moments. So... Look, I know some people would always say Messi, but I would just edge towards Maradona, but but it's always going to be close between those two. Mm. Romance isn't dead, mercifully. It's, this is obviously one of those milestone events, isn't it, Migs? A bit like the death of George Best 15 years previously to the day. Yeah, totally. And funnily enough, actually, one of the things I was... Uh, one of the things that struck me yesterday, actually, being half Irish, of course, it did remind me a little bit of... Um, when when Jack Charlton died a few months ago in the Senate, like, and even in the wider context we're in, where when 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 Charlton died, I remember the months before that I was kind of thinking to myself, I'm sick of all this nostalgia stuff because of the situation we're in. I'm not sure I can hear another story about Italian ninety in Ireland. We've been through it all so many times. Then when Charlton, literally that day when Charlton died, suddenly I was watching all that stuff anew and kind of <laughs> and, and 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 completely kind of invigorated by it and made made quite emotional by it. And now I found exactly the same thing yesterday with Maradona. I mean, because we've all heard so many stories so many times and seen the clips so many times, and yet it suddenly just, I mean, the the kind of the poignancy of it just puts a, a completely new spin on it, and you and you're 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 watching it with, with different eyes, and and. I suppose feeling different emotions because of it, and and now I find today I can't get enough of it, and I, I all I want to do really is kind of just I, I, like yesterday I had to work in the Champions League last night, and it was just one of, I just had no interest in it because I just I wanted to immerse myself in all the Maradona stuff. Yes, yeah, understandable. We will talk about the Champions League, honest folks, but let's look at almost the way the game has changed. You know, Addy referred to it, Glenn. Look, we we all know that brutality is part of the price that's paid by timeless talent. You know, I spoke to, spoke about Pushkas. You know, his ligaments in his his ankle were almost severed in the nineteen fifty four World Cup. Pele was kicked out of the nineteen sixty six World Cup. Cruyff was assaulted during the nineteen seventy four final. Maradona was basically mugged by Gentile in nineteen eighty two. It's really interesting that when he became manager, he was really protective of Lionel Messi, wasn't he? Yes, because I guess, as you say, he experienced that. I mean, I think that's one of the things that, I guess for younger viewers, it's quite hard to recall just how, I mean, you see it from the clips, but the game has so much changed in the way that protection, post, um, I guess, the changes after 1990, particularly, and after Marco Van Basten had his career wrecked by injury, you know, Back in that Maradona's time, you could tackle from behind. You know, referees were very, very lenient in those days. There was no cameras to catch all the off-the-ball stuff that was going on. And you, know, you had to look at well, that terrible tackle, the infamous tackle by Andoni Gokachia that shattered Maradona's ankles. When you look at 
what he experienced and still what he achieved despite those attempts to stop attacking players, you know, like the others you mentioned. Um, it, it sort of puts into perspective just how good he was. And then, you know, the extra protection now for people like Messi and uh, his protectiveness as a coach, you know, having seen, having been through that. I mean, and it's great in a way that you, it is great that now, you know, as spectators, we can enjoy, you know, talents like that without them being constantly injured, without them being kicked and battered as much. I mean, they still are. I suspect if you look at Messi's ankles at the end of a game or even any player who runs the ball, you know, like Grealish, you know, these players who run the ball and tend to get a lot of kicks, Wilshere in his time, you, know, you still get quite a lot of injuries and quite a lot of assaults, but it's nothing like the brutality uh, that used to be the case. Mm. What do you think he means, Addy, to today's players? Oh, good question. Um I, I was actually thinking about this just because of watching him and um, the move to, to Napoli and why he did that. And I think the players now look at him almost godlike and someone that was allowed and and took risks. And, and I think players now maybe don't do that as much. I mean, I always, you know, you always have these arguments of would Messi do it in the Premier League on a wet January in Stoke? And and uh, he did that, didn't he, with Messi? He went to Napoli and played for a team that, look, they, they weren't fancy. They weren't top of the table. In fact, they were a team, you know, more more to the relegation than anything. He was a player that seemed to be allowed to do what he wanted to do, as opposed to players now that are more, and I mean this in, in a kind way, players now that are more robotic. Ronaldo, sorry, Maradona, apologies, was allowed to, to go out and be himself and wasn't scared of being himself. It wasn't, wasn't afraid of speaking to journalists in the way he wanted to do. Wasn't, wasn't afraid of mixing with people who maybe shouldn't have done where footballers now seem to be wrapped up in cotton wool, aren't allowed to go anywhere, scared of getting snapped, going where anywhere. Maradona seemed a player that wasn't afraid of that. And I feel like players look at him and almost wish they could be like him, but yeah, definitely more godlike than anything else, which is interesting. Mm, I suppose that Napoli, Migs, he found a club and probably more significantly a city that suited his character. Well, yeah, I mean, it feels like there's almost a, a spiritual and emotional fit there, doesn't there? And it's interesting, I mean, like we've touched this a few times in the podcast already and the comparison with today. But I mean, if you look at those contexts, it really is actually almost impossible to compare the hermetically sealed worlds of Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi with the utter chaos that engulfed Maradona in in Naples. And before we get like before you get on to even all the darker stuff and what like say in the in the Capadia film is revealed to be his weekly schedule, <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> there's uh, there's everything else around it. Not not least the fact like I mean the, you know as as was mentioned there the rules of the game, the time, the pitches. It it was just it was a different football world in the sense. I mean, for one, I suppose as well, unlike Messi and Ronaldo now, you didn't have these super clubs that would just surround these stars with ultra high levels of talent. I mean, Napoli had some, especially by the second title, they had some really good players, some world class players like Kareka. But it was a much more democratic football world, which I suppose is explained by the fact that Maradona was going from Barcelona to Napoli, a club that had never previously won a title in the first place. And and then, of course, as you say, it's just the spirit that suited. I mean, I mean, even by the time he got he got to Naples, Maradona was living quite a chaotic private life. 
And that chaos was mirrored by what was going around him. And for a time, it suited him, even if, I mean, if you want to put it in its true context, there's also the argument that it was also the ruination of him. That's true. You know, when we look at modern football, it is corporate. It is quite calculating. In that context, Glenn, does football today still mistrust Mavericks? Well, I suppose we could look at close to home at the debate over Jack Grealish and say perhaps it does. There's an argument that if you're good enough and you are bending games to your will and winning games single-handedly, you can probably get away with quite a lot on and off the pitch. Um, after that, it becomes how quickly can you fit into a team? I mean, Maradona was a great team player. I mean, it wasn't just he. I mean, he won games on his own. You could argue he won a World Cup on his own. But you look at those clips from '86. The amount of chances he created that his teammates missed was incredible. It wasn't like he was trying to score the goals by himself. So you could argue he did fit into a team pattern. And I mean, I mean the Napoli thing, in a way, that's a measure of you know, true greatness is can you do achievements that others aren't doing in the, you know, and winning a title with someone like Napoli. I'm trying to think of an equivalent here, and there isn't really an equivalent here. But if you can imagine, say, in three or four years' time when... Neymar or Mbappe are like the greatest player in the world and they go to Newcastle and suddenly Newcastle win a couple of championships and win a European trophy. That's probably the nearest thing I can think about from an English context. And it's still nothing you know, like the scale of what his relationship with Napoli was. You can argue that the best players end up in the best teams, you know, like Messi now and Ronaldo now and, you know, or Lewis Hamilton in, in the car. But, you know, what, so it has changed in that respect. But I guess if, one of the reasons Maradona went to Napoli, of course, was because his personal life at Barcelona, Barcelona had enough of him and other teams were a bit wary of him. Yeah, you know, this is... Yeah, as I said earlier, a milestone moment. Is it also one for the game itself, Addy? You know, I'm thinking in terms here. We've had the Pele era. Pele is still Pele is still with us. Maradona, you know, the whole psychodrama around him. We've got Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo at the moment. Glenn mentioned potential successors, Mbappe. Neymar, mm. but are we moving into an era where the great dominant players simply don't exist? We won't have those type of legends, the legend of a Maradona that we're talking about now. Well, I mean, even even when you when you put it like that, the very fact is, it, I, I think it's impossible for any player to singularly dominate a tournament in the way that Maradona did in 86. And, and, and to be fair, I mean, one of, one of the reasons for his, his greatness is because it's arguable that's the most extreme and arguably unique example of that in history that no one had done it previously either. But, but, but certainly it's, it's, it's not, not, some, not something that's happened since. The closest is maybe Baggio in 94. And even that just wasn't, this, this, it just wasn't as... So commanding around it, it was it was it was some great goals at key moments. Whereas Maradona just, I mean, he bent bent the whole tournament to his will. I I think that's one thing that certainly changed that certainly changed. And and I, and I suppose well as well as that, it's such a. I mean, it's like again, the guys have touched on this already, but it's such a much more coordinated game now. It's not quite a looser sport that allows individual freedom in the same way. I mean, I suppose without without getting you know boringly tactical here. If, if you look at w- one of the reasons the game has changed and why there's been a debate about how, how managers like Mourinho, whatever, have had to evolve and all that. Mourinho's one of these managers who leaves 
who, who leaves his attacking players individual freedom. Whereas what we've seen over the last 10 years is that one of the keys to real top-level success is ultra-high-level coordination by managers like Klopp, managers like Guardiola, and that's both on the ball and off the ball, in which you have these you know highly organised and drilled moves. Uh, where I suppose one of the interesting things about 86 was that, I mean, and what, what was some of, some of the greatness to Bilardo, his manager as well, was ultimately in what was a relatively moderate Argentina team for a side that became world champions, he figured out a system that absolutely maximised what Maradona could be. And in the process, arguably kind of, you know, inventing wingbacks in that way. But again, it was about allowing an individual freedom that we wouldn't even see in the modern game. Because he, he, even he, even Messi, well, obviously, you know, managers have spoken about how you kind of just have to let him do what he does. It's still it's still within a kind of a modern team construct. And I mean, it would be fascinating to see Maradona in in in, in that situation. I mean, I'm obviously not for for any second saying he would diminish from his quality. He'd be probably better in the modern system. And I I think we we we'd see him posting even more, more incredible performances than that. But there's an interesting thing as well in terms of what Glenn mentioned there. And I, I think it almost points to the, uh, the, the two sides of Maradona that we see in so many dimensions of his life, which is on, on one hand, the arrogance and ego, which he undeniably had. You, you only have to look at some of the stuff he said. But that was complemented by a genuine humility that, you know, is touched upon by... By, by going to Naples and also how he dealt with teammates and old friends. I mean, someone pointed out to me yesterday, if you look at his, his Instagram, which evidently did run himself, a lot, a lot, a, a, a lot of it, but well, a lot of it is tributes to like old friends and old teammates who just wouldn't have been able to get anywhere near him. Yet he always kind of, he, he, rem, he always remembered them and was like, felt it important to pay tribute with them and, and touched on that. I mean, there's an interesting story from uh, around the build up to 86 when when Bilardo's obviously trying to con- configure a team, he, he's trying to get the chemistry right, and and Bilardo was you know one, one of the strictest disciplinarians uh, football's ever seen. I mean, they you know at the time it was in the middle of this whole d- the debate in Argentinian football about the dichotomy of Bilardo and Minotti. Minotti seen as kind of left wing free form football. Bilardo seen as as right wing disciplinarian football. But there was one team moment where I think I think the story was one of the players breaking curfew. This was either in 86 or in the build-up to it. And Bilardi was furious with this. And he wanted to know who it was, was insisting, who, right, who, whoever, whoever it was, you're getting thrown out of the squad. It, it was this serious... Maradona realises this, realises the situation we're in. And even though it wasn't him, puts his hand up and says, it was me, boss. <laughs> because he, <laughs> he, he, he knew he was, he, wasn't, he was a player that was never going to get thrown out. Yeah, there was that loyalty. I I got a glimpse of it when he was a manager in in South Africa in 2010, which again was utter chaos. You know, he was he was basically Johnny Depp pirate, the whole you know pirates of um, the Caribbean mode. There, he was off the scale. He kept his weight in one day in this really oppressively hot, claustrophobic press conference room at Soccer City in in Joburg. When he eventually turned up, it was chaos. And at the end of it, he dived over the protective barriers because he'd spotted in the crowd of of hacks a former Napoli teammate, and he hugged him. And, of course, you could imagine just the bedlam around him, cameras being smashed, the whole nine yards. It was brilliant. Now, when we, we look at him as a manager, and, frankly, 
and he, you know, he was a, a pale shadow of what he was as a player. In that point that, that Miggs has raised there, Addy, of the modern managers, who could you see getting the best out of him? Undoubtedly, is Jurgen Klopp. Uh, undoubtedly. Uh, they're actually quite similar in, in, as managers. And I, I don't mean from a tactical standpoint, but from a, a person and people standpoint. I mean, I was watching a fantastic piece of uh, when Maradona was managing in Mexico, which again had its own drama, right? This is a guy that we know had outside issues and he's in Mexico, which had the highest use of drugs in the world and he's there. But you just watch him in the changing room and the way in which he's laughing and cuddling players. And it just reminded me of Jurgen Klopp so much. And you can imagine the way in which him and Jurgen Klopp would have got on. It would have been just almost a, a... a dream made in heaven. It really would have been just because Jurgen Klopp would have put his arm around him. Jurgen Klopp would have smiled. And and that's what Maradona done as a manager. Yes, we can all kind of laugh at his managerial record. And look, obviously it wasn't great. He, he wasn't a great manager. But in terms of the way he used to try and motivate his players and put an arm around his players and sing in the change room and that big smile, again, very similar to Jurgen Klopp. That, that's what he had. And I think that's why he's loved so much. You, you listen to to people's stories of people that are close by him. Just the story that Miggs told and the one that you just told there as well. He was loved by people. And, and there's almost two different people. There is Diego, the, you know, the guy that's in front of the camera, the guy that had all the troubles in the world. And there is the one behind the scenes called Maradona, the guy that used to do so much charity work, the guy that used to help out old friends, people struggling, put on charity football games. It's a shame that I we never got to see even a charity football match with um, sort of Jurgen Klopp and Maradona together on the touchline, because that would have been uh, one for the cameras. Both have big beaming smiles. But yeah, Jurgen Klopp, w- without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, it's interesting. Unless we forget, he did actually play for Spurs in a, the testimonial for Ozzy Ardiles. And I think he borrowed boots from Clive Allen. Um, <laughs> so so maybe, not, uh, maybe not Mourinho then, um, Glenn. <laughs> well... You you think not, but Marino's a smart, intelligent manager. I mean, if someone offered him Maradona, he'd probably find a way to get him in the team. I mean, you've been offered the best player <laughs> in the world. I mean, Ronaldo did okay under Marino and Real Madrid. I think it'd be slightly different, but Marino also, I mean, he's very good with his players. I mean, players tend to like playing, the players in the team, obviously, tend to like playing for Marino, particularly in his, his early period when he was at Chelsea. I mean, there was a lot of love between the players and, and the manager. So it wouldn't be, you would say on the outside, it wouldn't be obvious, but I can't imagine if Marino had a player like Maradona in the side that he would get rid of him. Yeah, you would find a way to make a player like that work. And yeah, you may also be a situation whereby you might tolerate, I mean, yeah, this is it. If you're good enough, you can get away with quite a lot of things off the pitch. You would find a way to tolerate that sort of behaviour or any, you know, uh, those sort of things, unless it started to damage the team. And yeah, as Addy was saying, um, that series um, Maradona in Mexico, it just showed he's the sort of bloke you would love to have in your dressing room, quite apart from his brilliance, just because of the sort of character he is within a dressing room. And I, I suspect, yeah, uh, Marino might not might not like all the aspects of it. He might have to uh, bend one or two of his own rules. But, I mean, he'd be daft to sort of um, reject having a player as good as that. And he's not daft. Yeah, well, while we're on management, sort of broadening the debate, debate a little bit here, Migs, how did Mar- Marcelo Bielsa get onto the five-man shortlist for FIFA Coach of the Year? <laughs> um, I mean, it, it does feel a little element of that of kind of um, <laughs> David. I mean, as as tends to happen with a lot of these awards, and actually as tends to happen with the, with 
particularly these FIFA awards, as you can see from the, the, the Puskas nominations almost every year, they tend to get a bit swept away with media buzz and kind of general discussion and, 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 and a little bit of hype. Uh, and look, uh, as we've spoken about on this podcast many times before, it, there's no denying Bielsa's usually impressive impact at Leeds. Uh, and I, I, I think it, it shouldn't be overlooked. The, whatever about the football he's introduced at Leeds, the scale of the achievement there, given that, I mean, for all Leeds' historic stature as a club, that was a team he took over. They were 13th when he was appointed. Their wage bill actually isn't that big relative to the cha- relative to the championship. But it's not Luton Town he took up. And, I mean, <laughs> I mean most years, they're, they're not putting up the, the, nom- the nominees for the for this award aren't players that even that come up from aren't managers that have taken a team up from the second tier anyway. So it feels like a little bit like a good achievement married with Bielsa's huge media profile has basically propelled him onto the onto the nomination list. Yeah, yeah, I would say probably Klopp and and probably Hansi Flick would be my favourites for that particular gong. Liverpool, Addy. At Brighton in the BT Sport game on Saturday lunchtime. They were unrecognisable last night in losing to Atalanta. What do we read into that defeat? It's, it's difficult. Uh, not much. That, that, that's a good Atalanta team. I know people probably listening probably think, wait a minute, Liverpool beat them 5-0 in uh, the away leg. But it's, it's a good Atalanta team. And I think it, it would have taken a very good, strong Liverpool team to beat them at Anfield. Especially when you look at the the changes Liverpool made at the back as well. I think Nico Williams didn't really have a great game, nor did Reese Williams as well. And I think you can change the forward line, but I think in the Champions League, your defence has just got to be as strong as possible. Liverpool just don't have that at the moment. Going into the Brighton game, Fabinho would probably no doubt be back with Matip at the back. And, and then I just think it looks a, a lot stronger. There, there is a rumour that Trent could come back as well. Andy Robertson will be back. So that's then a, a good back line. So look, I think Liverpool have dealt with their injuries unbelievably well so far. And I think Jurgen Klopp would obviously be disappointed about yesterday's result, but silently happy as to where they are in, in the Champions League, still a member top of the table and in the league as well, coming off that fantastic win against Leicester. I think um, Liverpool will be comfortable at Brighton. I think uh, Graham Potter's has done a fantastic job. I, you know, I, I was very impressed with um, how Brighton played actually against Aston Villa. Uh, I'm more impressed about Welbeck as well. I think in Welbeck, if they've got someone that can get them 10 goals this season, they'll do all right, Brighton. But I think Liverpool have shown that regardless of the injuries, Klopp's got enough strength and depth there to put out a good squad, especially with no with Mo Salah back now and Diogo Jota doing his thing, to be comfortable against Brighton. So I think Liverpool will be OK. Mm. I suppose the debate about the physical demands on players won't go away, will it? What's your view of it, Miggs? Oh, I think it's... Uh, beyond anything, it's crazy. Uh, this this is what I keep coming back to in this debate. I, I think it's amazing that football is just trying to force in normal calendar in an abnormal situation in a season that's been basically crunched and concertinaed because of the wider situation. I, I'm, I'm stunned there aren't more compromises in the calendar. And I think the only two are basically the League Cup has no second legs, semi-finals, sorry, League Cup semi-finals, and there are no FA Cup replays. And that's pretty much it. And it's just amazing people don't think, people think that, that we might be able to carry on as usual in this. There won't be really deep effects on the squads. I think Euro 2020 or 21, as you want to call it, 
it might end up a bit of a 2002 World Cup situation in the time the players get there they're all exhausted and suffering from a lot of fatigue particularly given there's not that much of a break and I think um, it, you know a lot of people will think managers are just you know whinging or kind of you know selfishly complaining but there's a lot of merit in what they're saying right now uh, and if you look so at Liverpool I was going to say, it's not just the teams at the top either, I mean, which yeah. tends to get missed a bit. I mean, Wimbledon are currently in the run of potentially four matches in eight days. If they win the uh, cup replay at Barrow tonight, um, then they play again on Sunday. They played on Tuesday and they play next Tuesday. And, and that's a squad that does not have the resources of Liverpool or Man City and the umpteen players. Yeah, and it's much, much more difficult. And this is uh, in the build-up to the Christmas period when they're going to be even busier. Yeah, I suppose in that context, you know, it's important for you know, managers of the Champions League clubs to put the group to bed as soon as possible. Chelsea have done so. Manchester City did so by winning in Greece last night against Olympiacos. Addy, surely it's time for Phil Foden, who scored the decisive goal, to be a regular, isn't it? It is. And I I thought his time would have come a lot sooner. I thought he was the natural successor, David Silva. Guardiola seems to be kind of, I don't want to say holding him back because this is Guardiola. This is a manager that clearly knows what he's doing, but he seems like he doesn't want to unleash him yet. And I think it is time to unleash him because I think he's a fantastic player. And I think he's ready. I think we've kind of seen him in drips and drabs over the last couple of seasons, but I think now it's his time to shine. He took that goal fantastically well against Olympiacos. Him and Sterling seem like they've got this thing where they, they, they understand each other now, good friends off the pitch as well. And obviously he played fantastic for England in their last game, albeit against Iceland, but you've still got to do the job. I think Full Foden could be what we would have hoped maybe a Jack Wilshire. I know he plays a bit further forward, but what I hope Jack Wilshire would be, someone that's very comfortable and confident on the ball, very similar to Jack Grealish, actually. So I think he's um, a fantastic, fantastic talent. I mean, let's hope he can sort out the off-field problems, which it looks like they've tried to, tried to sort out a bit more now. But I think it's time to kind of unleash him and let him have a run of games. I understand the fixture pile up, but he's young enough. He's not a player that's got a lot of miles on the clock. He's young enough to handle a game every three or four days. And I think Guardiola, I think, can stop teasing us with the talent now and just show us what he's all about. Because I think he's, um, I think personally, if he can have a run of games, he could be a shoo-in to start for England, not even being on the squad, but start for England at Euro, what we call it, 2020 or still 2021. Yeah. Here's one for you, Glenn. You mentioned Jack Grealish there. In an England perspective... Would you have him in your team over, say, Mason Mount? You know, I think, for what it's worth, Mount is a, a much more complete player, especially out of possession, and I thought his contribution to the Hudson-Odoi goal in Wren last night was fantastic. Of those two, the yin and the yang, which one do you want to go for? I mean, as Grealish said after the last game, I don't see why you can't actually play them both. I mean, I don't think it is necessarily an either or. I mean, going back years, I mean, we're getting towards the stage where we're all going to start picking a Euro team or a Euro squad. I mean, um, experience suggests that Southgate will have to wait and find out who's actually fit come June and then then pick a team from there. There's always one or two players who suddenly aren't available who you think might have been available. So I think when it comes down to it, it'll be a case of who we're playing. There are elements where maybe Grealish, if you're playing against a deep packed defence, where maybe Grealish might be the player you want to get in behind them. If we're playing, say, Spain, and you might be looking more to counter-attack, then maybe Grealish isn't the man. Maybe you're looking to play quicker players in those wider positions, and therefore you might be looking for someone who can release them, like Mount. Against some teams, you might play them both. I think it very much is like a horses-for-courses 
it's great for Southgate to have these options. You know, there's also the other players like Rashford and Sterling and Sancho. And you know, he's got quite a lot of possibilities there. And it's going to be the tricky bit. He's going to be making sure he picks the right players for the right matches. And But what he does offer is, of course, some terrific options off the bench. Yeah. Chelsea are at home to Spurs on Sunday, Migs. Are they the real deal? The Maybe the deepest squad in the Premier League in terms of potential and quality? Yeah, I would say in terms of numbers, yes. And I think just for all the reasons we've mentioned, I think that's going to be huge this season. If this is going to be an endurance test, just sheer mass of numbers is going to be crucial. And I think it's why when it gets right down to that really testing period of the season around March, April... And I think where we'll see a lot of points drop from teams more so just because the the accumulative effect of uh, the physical conditions, uh, that that's when they could have a bit more to carry them over the line. I suppose the the, the big question is whether I don't want to criticize Lampard as a manager here, but ultimately he's still he's only he's only been a manager for for two three years. Whether he's capable of going toe to toe in a battle of wits, say, with Jurgen Klopp or Pep Guardiola. Well, looks in some moments. I'm not sure. Pep, I'm not sure City will, will be in it at that point. But but whether he's that developed as a manager at that point, and I think maybe one reason they'll fall short, which isn't to isn't to disparage Lampard in this case. I think it's just it's. I mean, you you always feel with things like this, managers almost need to go through a title race once before they win it, especially when you're taking on someone like Klopp. But in saying that, the the sheer numbers could take them very far. And I, I think will allow them to sustain a very good level of form. And, and also, to, to Lampard, Lampard does seem to have found a good balance in the team of late. I think Ziyech definitely helps that in that he just... It's as if he links so much together in attack. Then, you know, as you mentioned there about Mount, you, you've got a player, a player like Mount, who's a manager's dream, and links the attack in a different way because of his running, because of his tactical discipline. And it, it does seem something that Lampard has figured out in contrast maybe to the first few games of the season where it was all a little bit uncertain. And that was what, what points to, I mean, exactly what we're saying here is suddenly Pulisic, who'd been one of the stars of the second half of last season, particularly in Project Restart, were suddenly were wondering how much football he's going to get and where he's going to fit in. So, Michael, just to add on to that, Michael, I think what what will be interesting with, with Chelsea's and, and Mick's touched on it there in terms of the depth is how to keep all these players happy. And, and that's going to be something to be interesting to see if Lampard can, can solve that conundrum. There are a lot of players, and, and January is going to be interesting. Obviously, transfer window opens up, and there's players like Rudiger who played, obviously, in, in place of Thiago on the weekend. And I mean, he's going to want to get back into that German squad. I mean, is he going to be happy playing once every month? I mean, Callum Hudson-Odoi, again, it's 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 minutes here and there. He's, is he going to be happy? Giroud, we know he's desperate to, to get into that French squad. Is he going to be happy coming off the bench and playing five minutes here, five minutes there? So, yeah, it's, it's good that he's got a big squad, but it's going to test his, all of his managerial experience to keep that squad happy. A lot of these players want to play minutes and a lot of these players are linked with other big clubs where they can start as well. So let's see what happens in January. And it, look, if he can keep that squad happy, then I think they've got a great chance just because of the injuries to, to that Liverpool squad. But it's not going to be easy keeping a lot of those big players, players on big money, big egos, happy for the foreseeable future. Yeah, it's going to be interesting on Sunday because the, the subplot is obvious. Mourinho going back to Stamford Bridge, he does like a little verbal dart at, at Lampard on the touchline. We've seen that already. 
How do you expect that one to play out, Glenn? I think it's potentially the most interesting match of the season so far. I mean, um, obviously Liverpool-Man City the bit, recently it was quite a big game, but the... Um, yeah, we're now at a stage of the season where it's starting to settle down a bit. We can see who's going to be the likely contenders. I mean, you'd expect City to recover a bit, but yeah, this is a, a real good test of both teams. I'd imagine we look at a situation where Spurs will play much like they did last week. They will sit back, they will sit deep, they will invite Chelsea pressure upon them, and then they'll try and hit them on the counter-attack, um, using with Son and Kane, and yeah, try and basically sit wear Chelsea down. I mean, obviously... Lampard would expect this. I mean, he played this sort of game for Marino plenty of times. But Chelsea will, without the home fans, there's slightly less pressure for home fans, for home teams to charge forward and commit. But I think Chelsea do tend to be a quite attacking side. I mean, although he's tightened up at the back recently. the So you're expecting basically the first goal, as usual, will be crucial. I mean, if you can see the first goal to Spurs, then you have a problem. Yeah, with Spurs, they strike me, Migs, as a team which is almost in a in transition in a sense that you've got players who are beginning to almost broaden their roles within the team. You know, Kane's the obvious example. How far can they go? I think they can probably get into a title challenge. I, I must say, I'm still... I, I'm not completely taken away yet with how... With, with, the, with the recent form. I mean, obviously, it's led to a lot of discussion about the return of Mourinho... Everyone was wrong to write him off. That you know they they could potentially be champions. I, I I'm still very interested to see how this. Event. I think that this is why Sunday is so interesting in that regard. I mean, because if it, it, it feels like Spurs' season has almost happened in different installments so far. There was because I, I was I was talking to someone connected to Everton after one of their opening games, and they were absolutely scathing about what how how Spurs played in that in that game they they lost to Ancelotti's side because they just felt there was very little imagination to it and it seemed quite a classically problematic Mourinho performance in the latter stage of his career there wasn't much imagination then we obviously had those kind of goal gluts against Southampton at United uh, where Kane and Son just clicked but it did feel like the, the specific circumstances in the game kind of suited him against Southampton Southampton basically just played into their hands almost then obviously with United we had all sorts of factors, you know, but Spurs did, did exploit it. Then we had this series of games where, I mean, and this this feels something closer to what we saw in in some of the Chelsea seasons, particularly fourteen, fifteen, in the latter half of the season, where they were like against West Brom and Brighton, they were just about getting away with what were actually some pretty flat displays thanks to individual brilliance. And I mean, we mentioned this in a completely different com- uh, conversation about Maradona earlier, but this is almost, this is Mourinho's approach compared to compared to Klopp or Guardiola or any number of modern managers, where it's a very laissez-faire attitude to attacking. And it's about a kind of individuals coming up with responses themselves. And that, that's fine when everyone's on form, but it starts to run into problems where form drops off because ultimately there, is, there isn't a system to just lean on to kind of keep going through the same processes. And it's where he's run into problems in the past and where Mourinho teams can suddenly look unimaginative. And obviously, the, the, like the City game was huge from a psychological perspective and was, you know, a, a statement win. And yet at the same time, it was also a win that kind of, or a, a circumstance that suited Mourinho's approach because, I mean, at, at this point, and given the problems City have, you know how to set up a game against him. And it's, it's setting up a game in that way perfectly suits how Mourinho wants to set up. Uh, so while it was a huge win from a psychological perspective, I mean, 
to a certain degree, I think the jury is still out on on both Mourinho's revitalization and the extent of Spurs' title challenge. I know that goes against the grain what a lot of people what a lot of people are saying at the moment, but my instinct is still that there that this this form or this kind of run isn't quite as sustainable with them as people are thinking. And I, I well, but I mean, of course, we'll see the truth of that over the next few games. Especially given the difficult run they've got, I'm, I'm 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 willing to change my mind. But that's kind of you know the recurring recurring feeling for me at the moment. Yeah, you mentioned you know United and Southampton. United are at Southampton on Sunday. Glenn, does Oligana Solskjaer have the faith to be assertive in that match? Uh, it seems to me that that you know United are a much more fluid and penetrative team with with Greenwood in it. What do you think? Well, I mean, again, he's got a few choices, isn't he, in terms of what he's going to pick. I mean, this game will probably help him because, again, the Southampton will probably come at them a little bit. It has tended to be better in games when they can uh, sit back and counter a little bit. I mean, the West Brom was a good example. I mean, we talked last week about the fact that that might be more difficult than people anticipated, and it was very difficult. So it does look, Cavani has given them more options. You know, Greenwood coming back in a form, uh, well, coming back into contention, really, I suppose it also gives them a bit more options. I think he'd be looking to be let Southampton come at them to an extent. I mean, Fernandez is superb form is clearly a bonus. He's having a, such a great impact at the club. I mean, continued on from Project Restart to do so now. So, you know, maybe move Martial back to the wide position where he looks to be more more comfortable. Cavani in the centre. It's quite nice. I mean, United appear to have been in crisis most of the season, but when you look at the players they've got, uh, and also the fact that no one's getting away, uh, there's no reason why, given the options he has, if he can you know, work out which are the best options, why they couldn't be um, certainly around the frame. No, it's hard to make a case of actually sort of winning the championship. What do you think about Donny van der Beek, Addy? There seems to be a blind spot with him. Why? I think the why was, was probably Pogba. I think that, that was it was either... It seemed an issue of whether or not he can get him in that starting eleven alongside Pogba and uh, maybe Fernandez. I think now he's almost given up that Pogba ghost and Pogba story, and I think almost a bit like Phil Foden at Man City. It's now I think it's time to unleash him. Look, in all honesty, I don't think I think it was a panic buy to get Van der Beek in the in in the first place, and I felt like he he, he wasn't. He wasn't part of the jigsaw that they were looking for. Obviously, that that jigsaw was, was Sancho and other players as well. Now they've got him. I think they have to use him. I think he's an absolutely fantastic player, comfortable on the ball. And I feel like he could be the player that sits back and allows Fernandez to do what Fernandez seems to be doing now, which is scoring bucket loads of goals and creating loads of chances. And I think um, having a talent like Van der Beek in the side really does sort of open a few holes and just lets other players play. I still think there is an option, and I have to go back to Pogba, I hate to do it, but I still think there is an option to pay all three. And I just think if Van der Beek can sit and Pogba and Fernandes can almost be given, not free roles, but roles to go up and just create chances and score goals, I think United have a good a good team. And like Glenn said, I, I look at that, I look at United's eleven, and look, I, I don't think they, they're going to compete for the championship, but they should. Like they really should with that eleven. It's a fantastic eleven. I know people still laugh at the likes of Lindelof and Maguire, but like they've got a good squad. They really have. I think Tellez is proven to offer them something on that left a, a lot more than what I think Luke Shaw has done for them since he's been there. Uh, Wan Bissaka on the right, yes, not great going forward, but defensively one of the best right backs. It's a good squad, and I think if you can chuck in Van der Beek, especially the Van der Beek we saw for Ajax for the last few seasons, it, it, it's a talent. Right. Let's try and. Pull everything together. As I, as I said right at the top of the show, it's a it's been a special episode 
dwelling on the nature of heroes, really, what we expect from, from them, what we can't forgive. Very briefly, guys, who is your greatest? I'll start with you, Migs. <laughs> Good luck, Migs. <laughs> I suppose ultimately who your hero is comes down to who you grew up with and who was great at a certain age. And for me, from a football perspective, it was always Roy Keane. Given the Irish connection, <laughs> oh, uh, I, I mean, give, give, given that, like, given what, given his performance in '94, given the, how he dragged Ireland to the World Cup in 2002, but then I suppose you you, you change as as you get older. Like, and actually, that's I mean, in relation to the Maradona debate, that that's kind of the thing. I mean, you know, Keane was someone that he he, he affected. Uh, you know, he, he produced performances that were of national significance and therefore emotional significance for me. Whereas Maradona was almost this is the thing about him. He was just he was almost an otherworldly figure. He, I mean, he, even in the '94 World Cup, with how that ended, he was just someone on a on a different plane. Glenn, well, I'm reluctant to use the word heroes in the context of people performing sport, but in terms of ability or, or impact or the greatest sportsman, I mean, I, I grew up in a generation where it was always Pele. And then obviously the hand of God gold didn't exactly make you inclined to, to back Maradona's claims. But, you know, with maturity and getting old and seeing these things from a slightly different perspective, I think of those great players we've been talking about, and I would caveat that it's extremely difficult to compare players across generations because of so many differences in terms of fitness and refereeing and pitches and balls and boots and so on. What Maradona achieved with Argentina, a very modern Argentine side, and in successive World Cups, what he achieved at Naples, which no one else has done before since. It's a bit like the measure of Ferguson's greatness is what he did at Aberdeen as much as what he did at Manchester United. And with Clough, you know, what he did at Nottingham Forest. Yeah, for Maradona to take a team that had very little previous success and Quartz has done very little since either and turn them into the best team in Italy at a time when it, Serie A was the place to perform and also what he did with Argentina I would say probably I'd pick Maradona as the greatest of the players but with those caveats it is very difficult to tell and it's just aren't we lucky to have so many great players each generation yeah you're still going with Maradona Eddie no I, I'm, I'm not in terms of sort of generation uh, me growing up and just watching I think the best player I've ever seen and I was lucky to go and watch him a few times is um Brazilian Ronaldo R9 Ronaldo I I thought he was just he done things on a football pitch that I, I still to this day rewind and watch and, and try and figure out how he done it he was a superstar and we talk about doing it at the highest level obviously I mean he won a world cup and scored so many goals in the world cup as well I, I just thought he, he was a genius and I think he was a genius whose career was cut short because of injuries and I sometimes even though he won Ballon d'Ors and obviously got those big moves to, to Inter Milan and Real Madrid, I, I do wonder if we didn't have injuries, how good he could have been, how many goals he could have scored. But I, I thought he was just a genius on the pitch. And I'm all about moments. And sometimes on the pitch, he created moments. Yes, it might not be the you know, the highest goal scoring player of all time and this and that. But in terms of moments, I, I thought Brazilian Ronaldo was just the, the, the greatest player I've ever seen. Yeah. Maradona's my man. And I want to leave you with one last image of him. Try and find a 99-second film clip of him. It was shot in Naples. He stayed behind after training. The kit is sodden. He's got a red bib on. The penalty area is a swamp. You've got fans gathering behind bars and pitted concrete walls, and they're cackling with delight as he chips the goalkeeper. 
The goalkeeper doesn't like that. They tend not to. He advances a couple of paces before thinking better of his initial impulse to chase and kick Maradona's backside. Maradona repeats the trick, falls to his knees, beams and clenches his fist with childish glee. There are vicious left-footed volleys, skills that defy conditions and, occasionally, the laws of physics. When he leaves the pitch, playfully kicking rainwater after hugging the goalkeeper, he crosses himself. God rest him. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Glenn, Miguel and Addy. But the last word belongs to his colleague and teammate, Jorge Valdano. He wrote this in his column today. Today, even the ball, the most inclusive and shared of toys, feels alone, weeping, inconsolable at the loss of its owner. All of those who love football, real football, cry with it. <laughs>